thank you very much uh, for coming along. Uh, it's good to see so many of you here. And it's uh, second of our Twitter events. But the fact that they are Twitter events does not mean that real human beings are not also welcome. We don't want you to feel that corporeally you're making no contribution. And uh, my name is Conor Geerty, and I am responsible for events in the Law Department. And we've had one of these with uh, Keir Stormer, and uh, that's now available uh, on the web, a podcast, and uh, Rabinder's will in due course also be available on podcast. And uh, that gives these events a durability which was unthinkable just a few years ago. Rabinder was telling me about some event some years ago which led to an email to him just yesterday. Uh, and that's what we're aiming at, depth and reach. Uh, uh, and so we're encouraging that and we're also encouraging the Twitter dimension. Some of you may or may not have mobile phones with you. If you do, you want to comment, then you're supposed to send the comments to at LSE Law using the hashtag LSE Thing. Uh, we have a space, you will have noticed, for what we call the Twitter guru, who will be responsible for feeding through Twitter information at the end of the proceedings. Uh, part of the novelty is that we are having a conversation this evening, to which we are all party. And what we're going to ask our guests to do, Vinder uh, Singh, whom I'll introduce properly in a moment, is speak for... 15 or so minutes, and then uh, we have a mix of Twitter questions and also audience questions. And we aim to end ooh, in about quarter to eight, ten to eight. We may end earlier, we may end later, let's see. Now, uh, Rabinder is a judge, and uh, some of you may be, in fact, appearing before him tomorrow. And a question not to ask is Mr. Justice Singh, will I win? Uh, and please don't do that because it's all very, very embarrassing. Uh, do not produce, if I may say so, a copious file of vital information for Mr. Singh, Mr. Justice Singh, related to some future case, either. And uh, he will, uh, in a polite way, because I know he's a very polite person, not be drawn into discussions which are really inappropriate for a judge. And that narrows the field a little, but not hugely. Not hugely. Is something you should know. Now, one of the huge pleasures about running events at LSE, I ran events at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights for many years, and then I stopped that, and then I suddenly started running events again in a kind of compulsive exhibitionist manner. But one of the really enjoyable things about it is to be able to invite people whom you greatly admire, who are also your friends, to talk. And this is the case here. Uh, Rabinder was born in Bristol, or no, born in India, I think, actually, yeah, and grew up in Bristol, and went to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he got a double first in law, then spent a year at Berkeley, University of California, after which he went to the School of Law and was called to the bar in 1989. He joined uh, a very distinguished set, four to five grays in. Uh, Michael Belloff, I imagine, was then head of chambers, a very distinguished uh, barrister and academic. Uh, but in the year 2000, I got to know Rabinder better and have become very friendly with Rabinder through the, our joint involvement in the foundation of a new set of chambers 
called Matrix Chambers. I shall never forget Ravinder coming with a little sandwich with Morihan to try and persuade me to join Matrix Chambers, despite my hostility to human rights and my hatred of the English judiciary. Uh, and uh, far from these being disqualifiers, I discovered, to my amazement, that opposition to everything that Rabindra and Murray Hunt stood for was evidence of their, of their desire to have me on board. Uh, so I was very flattered by that. And we've had a fantastic time. It was just uh, a few barristers, including Cherie uh, Booth, uh, professionally, the then Prime Minister's wife, and us. And uh, I'm still at Matrix, and Rabindra's obviously moved on. He was Barrister of the Year in 2001. He became a Queen's Counsel in 2002. He will be embarrassed by my revealing that he, I think, is the youngest Deputy High Court judge in modern times. I imagine some relation of William Pitt was a judge at the age of about five. Uh, But, you know, that's not the modern times. Uh, And at the age of 39, he was a Deputy High Court judge. 39. And uh, has chaired the Bar Equality and Diversity Committee chair of the Constitutional Administrative Law Bar Association, bencher of Lincoln's Inn, and in 2011, again, meteorically early, uh, appointed a judge of the Queen's Bench Division of the High Court. So that is a staggering record. His cases were the sort of cases that, speaking here as a barrister some years ago, were cases that, upon which enormous public attention was focused. Uh, many of them to do with the uh, effects of legislation and executive action introduced in the aftermath of the war on terror, as it was called, Uh, famously the Belmarsh detention case in 2004, Uh, and many of them to do with the implications of our military actions overseas, Al-Skayeni comes to mind, the Bahamusa inquiry, but also hugely significant human rights cases, arguably I'd be interested in his view, and I may push him on this. The most significant human rights cases, Gaiden and Godin Mendoza, one of the most significant, a case in which Rabindra was intimately involved. We appeared together in many cases. What that involved was me sitting down and Rabindra winning the case. I found it <laughs> a most agreeable way to make a living. Every now and again, just before the case would begin, I'd inquire after his health in a mildly anxious way my grasp of the files not being proportionate, I think a common human rights term, to the importance of the issue. I relied very successfully on what is now Mr. Justice Singh. He has just around 15 minutes to introduce himself. He'll do so from here, after which he'll go sit down (coughs) and we will have our Twitter and corporeally inspired conversation. So can you please welcome Mr. Justice Rabindra Singh. Connor, thank you very much for that kind introduction. As Connor knows, it's a genuine pleasure and not just an honour to return to the LSE because uh, I was a visiting professor here (coughs) between 2003 and 2009 and retain a great fondness uh, for the LSE. I was saying to him, just as we walked into this room, that uh, I really enjoy the location of my office at the Royal Courts of Justice because not only is it on the quiet side of the building but it's literally facing the LSE and and I see many of the students and faculty members walking up and down uh, as I'm sort of looking out of my window. I I also hear, I don't know if you hear the bells of St. Clement's 
I think one of the wonders of being on that side of the building is that I open my window at nine o'clock in the morning and it, it literally rings oranges and lemons, ring the bells of St. Clements. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about four topics. It, it, in a sense, they are deliberately quite dull topics, but I hope that you will agree with me by the time I sit down that they're actually quite important topics. And frankly, there is quite a lot of misunderstanding in this country very often uh, about the things that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to talk about them in relation to myself, not because I, I particularly enjoy talking about myself, but I just thought that it would be of interest because often people do talk about uh, these topics without always knowing the finer details of what's really going on, especially because practice has changed and indeed the law has changed just within the last five years or so. The first thing I want to mention is judicial appointments and how I came to be a Justice of the High Court just over a year ago. Until about ten years ago, you will probably know that the only way in which a person could be appointed a High Court judge was the so-called tap on the shoulder, because the Lord Chancellor of the day, a member of the Cabinet, would invite a particular person uh, to become a High Court judge, and, and one hears stories, they may be apocryphal, where people were asked to come in, have a chat, and they were asked to start the following Monday. And they would say, well, hang on, I'm, I'm doing a case. And the Lord Chancellor would say, well, this isn't a negotiation. You know, do you want to be a High Court judge or not? And if you do, then you're starting next Monday. And that's how things happen. Then for a while, they ran a parallel system by which you could apply to be a High Court judge to the Lord Chancellor, but he retained his power to appoint judges alongside that system and still use the tap on the shoulder. That all changed in 2007. As a result of the Constitutional Reform Act 2005, Parliament created the Judicial Appointments Commission, which is an independent commission. It's not a part of the government. It's deliberately at arm's length from the government. And Although initially it didn't have responsibility for appointing High Court judges, very quickly it was given that responsibility. And in 2007 they ran the first competition for the High Court bench. And I think since then they've run three or four. And so the position today is, and this was the position when I applied to be a judge in 2010, that there is no such thing as a tap on the shoulder anymore. Even as a parallel system that has disappeared. So when I was appointed, it was the result of an advert that any lawyer who was qualified uh, under the statute could respond to, and then I had to fill in an application form, I had to provide referees, and I had to be interviewed. You might think, no surprises there. That's really a normal sort of way of appointing someone to a job. So that was the first topic I wanted to mention. The, the second is this, and again, I think there's relatively little understanding, if I may say so, about this, that judges are 
trained. It's a very important topic, judicial training. There is actually now something called the Judicial College. Uh, most people may not have heard of it. It used to be called, until a couple of years ago, the Judicial Studies Board. And that came into existence in 1979. Uh, but as I say, it changed its name a couple of years ago. It's, it, in a sense, Connor, it's a virtual institution because it doesn't have any permanent premises. Uh, but its chair is Lady Justice Hallett, Heather Hallett, who is a, ju a judge of the Court of Appeal. And it has a number of training directors and occasionally uh, outside teachers are brought in. But generally speaking, the Judicial College operates on the principle that the judicial training should be done by judges for judges. But when we need, for example, specialist help on sentencing or something of that sort, uh, very well-known academics, uh, David Ormrod, whom you will know, is now a member of the Law Commission currently on secondment there, uh, one of the finest academic criminal lawyers in this country, in my view, and, and I've had the pleasure of listening to a number of talks that David has given us uh, on subjects like joint enterprise in homicide. So before anyone can sit, for example, as a part-time judge, uh, they have to be trained. When I was appointed a recorder of the Crown Court in 2004, I had to go through the, what I regard as a rigorous training process. Actually, the, one of the most difficult four days that I've ever experienced. And one of those four days was taken up with a mock trial, which everyone finds very daunting before you do it. And everyone agrees afterwards that it's the most brilliant thing that you've ever had to experience. And the mock trial consists of a whole day spent as if you were in the Crown Court trying a criminal case with a jury. And everything that could possibly go wrong in a criminal trial does go wrong. And when the tutor calls on you, it's a bit like the Socratic method, you know the famous Harvard Law School method. They call on you in the audience, so I could call on one of you. And you're not allowed to say, well, I would think about doing this, or I would think about that, or I would look that. No, 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 the, the tutor isn't interested in that kind of deliberative process. You are the judge, and what the tutor expects you to do is you know, somebody swearing at you from the public gallery. What do you do? Say it. You have to say what I am actually going to do there and then. Or a juror collapses in the jury box because they couldn't stand the sight of blood and they've just been shown horrible photographs. But what do you actually do? And it's an amazingly instructive experience. And there are other things that you have to do. You have to sit in with other judges uh, for a number of weeks, uh, particularly in the criminal jurisdiction. So you're not allowed uh, to do cases by yourself unless you are appropriately trained. And then we have to have continuation seminars. Every year uh, we each go to several days of continuation training. Uh, in September this year I went to a course at Warwick Well, it, it's held at Warwick University, but the training is done by the Judicial College, and that was all about uh, trying murder cases. Uh, and <clears throat> We also have continuing education on each of the six circuits. 
That's something I'll come back to right at the very end before I sit down. I should also say that uh, even if you've done the initial training, there are certain gradations of work that a judge is not permitted to do uh, without having been on a suitable training course. Uh, And one of those is that you cannot try serious sex offences, which are principally rape, but they can also be uh, serious sex offences to do with child sex abuse and things of that sort. You cannot do it, even if you're a high court judge. You cannot simply, by virtue of that office, try such a case unless you have done the appropriate training course. And I think that the reasons for that will be apparent to everyone in this room. The third thing I want to talk about is the work of a high court judge in the Queen's Bench Division, because it's, again, it, it sometimes comes as a surprise to people. People often ask me, because they know about my background and my specialist interests at the bar being public law and human rights work. Uh, people often assume, therefore, that I spend all of my time, or most of my time, sitting in the administrative court. I don't. I'm a justice of the Queen's Bench Division, and there are 72 justices of the Queen's Bench Division. It's the largest of the three divisions of the High Court, and in a sense it's the most general of the three divisions, because the Family Division does, as uh, as its name implies, very specialist work in the Family Jurisdiction. The Chancery Division is again a small part of the High Court, and does principally company law, Chancery, uh, trusts work, things of that sort. And everything else goes into the Queen's Bench Division. And there are specialist courts within the Queen's Bench Division, particularly the Commercial Court and the Administrative Court. But I spend at least half of my time doing criminal law. And I do that either as a trial judge going on circuit around the country, (coughs) doing the most serious offences, which tend to be homicide, terrorism, or, as I've mentioned, serious sex offences. Or, and and this came as a real surprise, uh, I think, even to people who are well-versed in the legal system. Uh, I spend about 25% of my time, so half of the half I spend doing crime, is in the Court of Appeal, criminal division. So although you're a judge of the High Court, in fact, you sit in the Crown Court when that's necessary, doing trials, and you sit in the Court of Appeal when that's necessary, because you're hearing criminal appeals, both appeals against conviction and uh, appeals against sentence. And I'm usually the third judge in a panel of three, uh, but I'm expected to do the judgment of the court in uh, some of the cases which are in the list for that day, uh, particularly if there are appeals against sentence. I had the pleasure a few weeks ago of sitting with the Lord Chief Justice and Mr. Justice Wilkie in Cardiff because the Court of Appeal uh, spent a week hearing appeals from the Crown Court in Wales. And I think the Lord Chief has uh, made a public announcement that his desire is that all criminal appeals in Welsh cases should now be heard in Wales. That's a consequence, I think, of uh, an understanding that we now have a devolved uh, system in Wales. So that's half of my time doing criminal work. The other half I spend doing civil work, uh, but that could be probably about 25% of my time overall 
is spent in the administrative court because that is my specialist area. And the, the remaining 25% of my time is everything else. And that can be, it's absolutely fascinating because you can be the overnight judge dealing with what sometimes are called pyjama injunctions, uh, <laughs> uh, which is you know, sometimes the press uh, have to be stopped from invading someone's privacy or what may be defamation action. Uh, more typically, It'll be, if it's an urgent case heard overnight or over the weekend, it'll usually be that somebody's about to be deported and you have to consider whether their removal from the United Kingdom should be stopped at least on an urgent basis so that the court can consider whether their removal would be lawful. And occasionally uh, what uh, I've had to deal with are things like homelessness cases where uh, particularly if a family finds itself on the streets overnight, then you can be asked to deal very urgently uh, with an application that they should be provided emergency accommodation. Uh, But it can be anything. I've dealt with commercial-type cases to do with worldwide freezing orders, what used to be called Mareva injunctions, and what used to be called Anton Pillar orders, which we now call search orders, uh, which are usually done for obvious reasons without notice. Uh, Breach of uh, covenant cases and employment cases. Uh, Really everything that human activity can generate as a matter of legal dispute comes before the court and it usually comes before the Queen's Bench Division. The fourth and final thing I wanted to mention briefly is that some of you may have heard and Connor, Connor wrote to me recently uh, about this, that, that I've been appointed uh, a presider, what's known as a presiding judge, on the Southeastern Circuit with effect from the 1st of January next year. Again, it may be something which is quite mysterious if you're not familiar with the system, but essentially uh, England and Wales is divided into six circuits, as you may know, and the Southeastern Circuit is one of those and includes London, but it extends as far uh, east to Norwich in East Anglia and uh, as far south as Canterbury in Kent. And basically the role of the presiding judges, there are two on each of the circuits but four on the southeastern circuit because it's the largest. And half the judiciary in England and Wales are actually in the southeast of England. So that gives you an idea of why four judges are needed to be presiders on this circuit. And essentially, uh, I will have two roles to fulfill. One is a management role, because the presiding judges are in charge of the judiciary and the court system in in, in this circuit. And the second is that the presiding judges uh, are expected to try the most serious criminal cases which are heard on that circuit. And of course, you'll be aware that the Southeastern Circuit includes the London Courts, and in particular, it includes the Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey. So I, I end on that note that I look forward for the next four years to being a presider on this circuit, and, and that may well include doing uh, some very interesting and important uh, trials in this part of the country. Thank you very much.
fascinating. And uh, just exactly what I sort of want as an introduction to the evening. I'd like to, I have a lot of questions, and I'm allowed to do it, Twitter or no Twitter. But I'd like first to ask uh, Bradley. Bradley is going to sit here, and Bradley Barlow is our valued Twitter expert, Twitter guru, and he's going to tell you what happens next. Bradley, welcome to the stage. Hello. Our conversation. We've grown over on this side since I entered the room. Um, So basically, yeah, we'd like your questions and your comments. Um, If you send them to at LSE Law, if you're on Twitter, there's not enough of you with your phones and iPads in your hands, so please do get them out. If you use the hashtag LSE Sing, that's S-I-N-G-H, obviously the details are up there, then we can, I can uh, follow them and we'll feed them over to uh, uh, Mr Justice Singh and Connor and hopefully we'll get the best ones asked. Can I ask you something? Can I ask Go for something before we start? The tap on the shoulder thing. The Guardian rang, ran, a pretty devastating front page mm. after appointments <coughs> through the transparent process mm. where people answered an ad and they supplied the references and they were adjudicated upon in the usual sort of transparent way. And they were all white men mm. in their early 50s, mainly from private schools and Oxford and Cambridge, LSE, top-ranked places. Now, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> the point they were making was that focusing on qualifications... Mm didn't broaden the range of people going into the bar, into the, the courts. I wonder what your feeling on that is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a subject I've been interested in for many years, as you can imagine. And, and we dealt with this quite a lot when I was on the Bar Council's uh, Equality and Diversity Committee. The, the difficulty, I think, in practice is that... The senior judiciary are recruited from the ranks of the senior bar in particular. The competition is open to everyone. The competition is everyone who meets the statutory criteria. I don't know, because I'm not a member of the Judicial Appointments Commission, where the applications tend to come from. But just looking at the fact that people like me, by and large, are those who are appointed, it does seem as if it still tends to be senior QCs who are supplying at least most of the high court judges. Uh, I think the position is much more varied in the circuit bench and is even more varied in the district bench. So I think that the, the, the thing about the, the pictures... Of course, it can have a very dramatic impact, but I think that it would be a mistake to assume that the judiciary is confined to the high court bench, or what tends to be called the senior judiciary. In numerically, it's actually, as I've said, 72 is the Queen's Bench Division, and that's the largest division. It's actually a relatively small part of the overall judiciary in this country. Uh, The only other thing I would say is that the the Judicial Appointments Commission was quite deliberately given a very clear remit by Parliament in the 2005 Act. Uh, It is made absolutely clear on the face of the Act that appointments must be made on merit and nothing but merit. And alongside that, there is another obligation, uh, which is that they have to... 
uh, I can't remember the exact words of the section, people can look it up, but it's along the lines of that they have to uh, try to widen the pool from which those who are appointed will be appointed. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, uh, the Judicial Appointments Commission engages in many outreach events and activities uh, which are designed to encourage people uh, from different backgrounds to consider a judicial career. One of the things that we do very regularly, and again, people may not know this, I mean, just today I had a marshal uh, who's a young black woman. And uh, I mean, they can be from all sorts of different backgrounds, but, but uh, they, they will certainly be uh, both men and women and from all uh, ethnic uh, origins. Uh, and, and the idea is to demystify, I think, the work of a judge and to introduce people to, at a young age uh, they're often students or they may be just beginning their careers as lawyers and they have the opportunity to uh, shadow a judge like me and just to see how the courts work. So I think that it's a very long-term process. I've, I've always said, to, if I could just finish with these two points, Connor, I've always said that there are no quick-fix solutions and uh, I personally... Uh, have always opposed and do oppose the idea of quotas. And the reason for that is quite simply that I would regard that as insulting. I wouldn't have applied if I ever thought that anyone had appointed me, not because I was the best person. Um, I would have stayed at the bar, Connor, frankly. I'd have, yeah. I'd have carried on you know, the uh, fantastic work that I had the pleasure of doing as a barrister. Yeah. So I would certainly not have wanted to be patronised uh, by anyone suggesting that I was appointed uh, for any reason other than merit. Yeah. Oh, we might want to come back to that through questions. Let's take the first uh, tweet, shall we, Bradley? Yeah. And I've got it in front of Rabinda. This is probably from Tim Newburn, is it? It is indeed. How yeah. does Mr Justice Singh view the current controversy surrounding prisoners' voting rights? Well, I'm not going to comment on the current controversy. Uh, precisely because it is a current controversy. Uh, but what I can, I think, say is, again, people may not know this, uh, Connor, I know you do, that I was counsel for the government in the main prisoner voting rights case. Winning caused all the trouble. Hmm? Is this the case in the, court, in the English courts or in the Strasbourg court? They both. Yeah, I, I did it, I did it yeah. in the English courts. It was one of the earliest cases to arise under the Human Rights Act. Uh, and the brief landed on my desk uh, in the autumn of 2000, shortly after the Human Rights Act had just come into force in October 2000. And uh, I remember thinking that it really did herald a new era in our way of doing law because the only remedy which the applicants in the High Court were seeking was a declaration of incompatibility. And so we engaged in, certainly in my professional experience, it was the first time that I, as an advocate, had to engage in a kind of uh, constitutional adjudication which we had never had experience of before. Because although, of course, the courts don't have the power to strike down an Act of Parliament under the careful scheme which the Human Rights Act created, nevertheless, it is a form of constitutional review. It's not, in substantive terms, it's not different from what our colleagues do in Canada or many democracies around the world. In other words, the court is asked 
to assess the compatibility with a Charter of Fundamental Rights of an Act of Parliament. And at the end of the day, if it had agreed with the applicants, it would not be able to strike it down, but it would make a declaration of incompatibility. If, if, if it had agreed with the applicants, yeah. we'd now have to focus on the British courts. Yes. It, and you, I want to make a general question, actually, before we get on to another question, but the success of your argument has focused all the attention on the Strasbourg court. Do you ever feel, or did you ever feel as an advocate, disappointed that you'd been as persuasive as you were? <laughs> I don't think it's anything to do with my... Persuasiveness. Well, interestingly enough, what, what jurisprudentially, I think, happened was that at that time there were a number of decisions of the former European Commission of Human Rights. And, and, and if people know the procedural system in Strasbourg, you will know that before 1998, the, the filter stage was carried out not by the court as it now is, but by a body known as the Commission of Human Rights. And so lots of cases, historically, never got to the court because it's a bit like refusing permission to bring a claim for judicial review in our domestic legal system. And, and, and in lots of cases uh, around the Council of Europe, people had tried to challenge bans on prisoners' voting. And every time the European Commission of Human Rights had held these applications to be inadmissible on the ground that they were manifestly ill-founded. And so all the precedents that the English courts had to go on from Strasbourg were against applicants. So I think that was one thing, that they they followed the the then Strasbourg jurisprudence. What happened in Hearst No. 2 in 2005 in the Grand Chamber although not a unanimous judgment, it was a 12-5 majority decision, was that the European Court of Human Rights decided to depart from the earlier jurisprudence, if you like, the clear and constant jurisprudence which there had been previously, uh, and which the domestic courts had loyally followed from Strasbourg. The, The second jurisprudential development was that when we argued the case and, and, and succeeded in this jurisdiction, there was a decision from Canada called Survey No. 2, which was decided by the Court of Appeal for Ontario. And that was, again, in favour of the government in Canada. So they had a law which wasn't the same as the UK law, but it was fairly restrictive, as I recall, uh, on the right of prisoners to vote. And, and that was held to be consistent with the Canadian Charter of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms. In the meantime, by the time the case got to Strasbourg, the Supreme Court of Canada reversed the Court of Appeals. So uh, that again, I think, and it's interesting that although Strasbourg is applying a European convention, uh, it's one of the best examples that I'm aware of, of where the Strasbourg Court quite explicitly looks at the case law from outside Europe. And in particular, it looked at the Canadian Supreme Court judgment in Sauvey and said that it would follow that in, in, in effect. Yeah. That's just a glimpse of what a persuasive advocate he was, fending me off very easily there. Uh, shall we take a few questions from the floor? Quickly, with your name. The gentleman at the back, I'll take, can I take two or three? Sure, please, about please, please do. Please do. Yeah. Uh, your name and a quick question or comment, sir, and then I'm looking for other... I've got this gentleman over here on my left, so name a quick question. Got anybody in the middle? I'll come back for you. 
Yeah, my name is Amili. I've got special interest in uh, human rights uh, issues. Um, I want to know briefly um, what are the percentage of the ethnic minorities judge uh, from Crown Court beyond upward? The percentage of High Court judge from ethnic minorities. And the second question is, could you explain to us um, the conflict of interest? Sometimes we come across um, a judge who represents a part-time judge representing a client. Um, that client is in dispute, and the same judge is presiding over the same case and deciding against the the uh, accused, and then and somebody thinks there is a vested interest. How can these are compatible in English jurisdiction? Um, a presiding judge representing a client of an, or a company at a dispute, and then, uh, so I'm sure you can understand what I'm trying to say. Okay, thank well, you. Let's, thank you very much. Let's see. We'll, we'll, we'll come to it in a minute, but the second one may need clarification, which we may do later, but we'll see. We'll see. I didn't... Uh, yes, um, even though I know your name. Hi. Um, Michael Blackwell. Um, thank you. You mentioned that the High Court judges tend to be drawn from senior counsel, especially Queen's counsel. So I was wondering if you could comment a bit on Queen's counsel and the difficulties of getting appointment historically and whether you think they've changed, um, especially because in your response to the 2003 consultation, uh, you gave a joint response and you said that the system may operate to the disadvantage of ethnic minority applicants. And I wondered whether you'd experienced that yourself and you could elaborate whether that's changed at all. Uh, and I have a massive bias towards a female from the middle because the middle's been ignored and females have been ignored. And we have somebody whom I do know but will ask you to say who you are. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Francesca Clark from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE. Um, yesterday, I think there was a, an election somewhere in the world. And uh, it, it said that the most important decision uh, that the President of America, Barack Obama, has to make in the forthcoming period is his appointment of the next Supreme Court judge. There are many people in this country who are very pleased that we don't have the identical system of judicial appointments here as in America and it's often said that our judges are not politicized as they are in the states and there's a fear expressed that we're heading in that direction. I wonder if that's your view as well I wonder if you think that even if it is possible to maintain a system where you would say the judges are not politicized, and that's, I think, the general view, uh, at least comparatively here, whether you think it is nevertheless possible for a judge to keep his or her own ethical framework, his or her own values, removed from the judgments that they make, uh, whether you think it's desirable for them to do so, and whether the training that you talked about touches on these issues. Great, thank you. Uh, we've got three, but they, one breaks down to two, and the others obviously have dimensions to them. So if you could deal with each, and then we'll go back to Twitter. Yes, certainly, yes. Uh, on the first question, I think uh, it was about the percentages of uh, ethnic minority judges in particular at different levels of the judicial system. I don't know those 
off the top of my head, although I have looked at them, and, it, and, and they are available on the Ministry of Justice website, uh, which has tables which will give you a breakdown in more detail of those figures. My, my recollection, but it's completely off the top of my head, is that I think if you look at the overall figure, it runs at something below 10%, and the higher up the, the system you go, it, it starts to fall uh, to, well, obviously in the Supreme Court, I think it's zero. Um, so uh, th there's that tapering effect. It's women who are 10% in the Supreme Court. So. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> yes. On the conflict of interest point, I, I didn't, I'm afraid, fully uh, take on board what the question was about, but can I without commenting on any individual case, which it would be inappropriate to do. What, what I think I can say is that uh, I believe that we have uh, well-established rules in this country about avoiding conflicts of interest and uh, what is known in public law as apparent bias. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's certainly understood that in the case of a part-time judge, there can be more of an issue uh, than there would be with a full-time judge, simply because a part-time judge, obviously, uh, apart from the three or four weeks a year when they sit as a judge, they have to uh, do their ordinary job the rest of the time. And as a matter of principle, I, I think it's quite clear that conflicts of interest uh, are, are not permitted and, and should be avoided. The application system for QCs is quite interesting I think it was Michael who, who raised that from the floor. Uh, we, we considered this uh, at the time when I was on the Bar Council's Equality and Diversity Committee, and it's fair to say that views differed, and, and I think the views still differ, about whether it's necessary to retain the QC system at all. Uh, I don't want to comment on that this evening. But what I can say is that in 2003, my recollection is that the Lord Chancellor, for a couple of years, had a moratorium on QC appointments because uh, there was a lot of concern, I think, it's fair to say, from the Law Society uh, on behalf of solicitors uh, and more generally in the profession and in the public. And the net outcome of that process, as I recall, was that a little bit like with the Judicial Appointments Commission, what the Lord Chancellor decided to do was no longer to make QC appointments himself. And what now happens is that uh, <clears throat> the government plays no role, as far as I'm aware, in that system. It, it's effectively being, uh, quote, privatized, unquote. And there is a, an independent body uh, which considers applications to become a QC uh, once a year and as far as I'm aware that that system is working well uh, I don't know the details of it I'm afraid because it's simply not part of my sort of specialist knowledge um, the last question if I can pick up some of Francesca's points I mean, uh, huge huge and deep questions from Francesca uh, I certainly uh, would agree with, I think, the general view in this country that uh, we would not want to 
have a political judiciary. Uh, as Francesco will know, but not everyone in this room will know, uh, I spent a year in the USA as a student. Uh, I did my master's at the University of California at Berkeley, and I had a great time there. I was there in 1985 to 86, and while I was a student in California, uh, I had the opportunity to observe something very controversial which was going on at that time in the state of California. Uh, California is not one of those states where judges are elected. In many states in the USA, they are. So never mind the federal system where they're appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. So the Senate will hold confirmation hearings for the federal judiciary at all levels. So the ones we tend to hear about are the Supreme Court justices because they're the most important and high profile. Uh, but at least at the federal level, it's an appointment system. In the state uh, jurisdictions, very often judges are elected. I've, se I've been to American states like the state of Washington where I've seen on a highway posters where people are campaigning to be elected as judges. Now, it's not for me to criticize another country's... Oh, go on. No, no, I'm not, no. <laughs> I'm not going to criticize another country or another country's system. All I will say is that I don't think anyone in this country has any appetite for having an elected judiciary. But, but returning to California, that was an interesting controversy because what happened in the 80s was that they don't have, strictly speaking, an elected judiciary, but they have a system of popular recall. So the justices on the Supreme Court, including Chief Justice Byrd, who was a woman, Rose Elizabeth Byrd, she and her colleagues were all appointed by the governor, who was then Jerry Brown. And I think, if I've read correctly, Jerry Brown has returned. He's back. And he's, no, he's now back again. Uh, after Arnie Schwarzenegger, he's now governor of California again, 30 years on. But it was widely believed, rightly or wrongly, it was widely believed by some people in, in California <clears throat> that the judges on the Supreme Court would never allow anyone to be executed. Because California had retained the death penalty in principle. It was on the statute book. But for a number of years, nobody in California had in fact been executed. Because it was felt, as I say, rightly or wrongly, that the judges on the Supreme Court were opposed to the death penalty and would never implement it. So there was a popular recall vote. And all of the judges that uh, were not liked were voted off including the Chief Justice. And it just strikes me as not being the way that we would want to run our judicial system. But that then leads to the very important question, if I may say so, that Francesca raises, which is, can a judge act outside their own ethical framework? And do we want a judge to do that? I'm always reminded in these sorts of discussions <clears throat> of something that a great commercial judge from the 1920s, Lord Justice Scruton, said. It was even before there had ever been a Labour government in this country, and he gave a lecture at Cambridge, I think, which is published in the Cambridge Law Journal, if people are interested in looking it up, in about 1923. And, and he says there, words to the effect, that I have taken a judicial oath to be impartial, 
And every judge takes that seriously. And I would agree with him about that, actually. I've taken that, and I'll, I'll come back to that oath in a moment, if I may. <clears throat> but he said that you would not be human if you didn't bring into the courtroom all of your background. Because obviously you try to decide cases on the basis of the evidence and on the basis of the arguments. But he recognized, as a great commercial judge, that it is inevitable, it's part of human nature, that you don't leave your character and your personality and your upbringing behind when you enter the courtroom. And his point, I think, was really not that we, we should uh, pretend that that doesn't happen. We should recognize that it happens, but nevertheless, always be conscious that when we sit as judges, it is not our role to impose our own views. Uh, we have to decide in accordance with uh, the law. Uh, I'm reminded of a case, if I may mention this, when I was arguing a case still at the bar in the Privy Council, I was doing a sex discrimination case on behalf of the government of Bermuda. And it was a sex discrimination case which had been brought by men because in Bermuda, the uh, law, as, as, as is often the case around the world, although not everywhere like Israel, but conscription, military conscription only applies to young men. And so women are not uh, compulsorily recruited into the army in Bermuda. And uh, an organization of uh, men called Bermudans Against the Draft, or BAD for short, uh, launched a challenge, and partly a constitutional challenge and partly a legislative challenge under their equivalent of the Sex Discrimination Act. And, and what I found interesting as an advocate, because I won the case in the Court of Appeal for the government, and then uh, the applicants appealed to the Privy Council. So, so I was arguing the case for the government of Bermuda in the Privy Council, and one of the judges was Lady Hale. And Lady Hale said to me, Mr. Singh, I, I paraphrased, but I hope accurately, she said, Mr. Singh, I would like to decide this case against you because I don't like sex discrimination. But I recognize that you have the better of the legal argument. And I thought that was a very interesting insight into the judicial function, which is a very clear example, I think, of how I cannot, when I sit as a judge, decide the case in the way that I would necessarily want to because what I have to do is engage in what I think um, might be described as a Dworkinian exercise of looking at what are the best legal materials. What is the best legal answer on the legal materials? Sorry, is that a, is that we a may be about to be burnt alive, <laughs> in which case I should rather later in the day tell you where the exits are. Yes. Or it may be a, a defect in the building. It strikes me as not persuasive on an imminent conflagration. <laughs> I think we can eliminate that. Do the stewards... Have you been trained like the judges in noise? <laughs> Right, a lady has gone through the fire right, alarm door. <laughs> this is the equivalent of being in the tube and being told that somebody's fallen and carry on happening. So we, with sufficient degrees of anxiety about the lady now having been set yeah. to one side. Can I just finish on the judicial finish oath? Finish on this and then we'll take some Twitter. Yeah, I did, want, I did want, to, want to mention the judicial oath because 
On the 3rd of October last year, I was sworn in as a judge of the High Court, and I had to take the oath of office. And I have to say that when I got to the crucial words, I actually found it deeply moving. It really did affect me. And I thought that I must inject some poetry into this. So I'll just share with people again the words that I had to say in public, take a solemn oath before my family as well as everyone else in court. And, And the crucial part of the oath says that I will do right to all manner of people after the laws and usages of this realm without fear or favor, affection or ill will. And you can say that, and it may just be words, but to me, that was a deeply moving promise to make. And I feel genuinely honored that society has asked me to perform that task uh, to the best of my abilities. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Brad, do you have any tweets from the floor, and then we'll move into yeah, box. There are a couple. Um, we'll take a few. We'll take a few. Well, look, let, let's just take one for the moment. Um, uh, do you have a view on when, where, or how public legal education should start or take place? So we'll take, we'll take another twi- tweet. Uh, can we go to... Sorry, so have you got that one? Uh, I'm not sure what's meant by public legal education. I think I know what it means. Okay, I'll deal with it. Yeah, we'll deal sure, with no it. problem. Uh, and uh, we're now going to ask Rob uh, Craig, Robert Craig, three. And uh, even though Robert Craig, certainly, possibly three, maybe it's Robert Craig, one is in the audience, I don't know. He's here, but we see what it is. So perhaps we did not benefit and, the benefit of... Do you think it is either useful or helpful to use the word illegal in the context of international politics? Maybe do a couple of those. And let's take a third here. Amy, Amy's one. <clears throat> it's a long one. It's a long uh, one. Is Amy, Amy? Bear with. Um, you once said the most important word in the European Convention on Human Rights was everyone. Do you worry that replacements of the Human Rights Act with a UK Bill of Rights might threaten this most important protection for everyone to include some of the more unpopular or marginalised in our society? My goodness, Amy. It's, I mean, is that 140 characters? That looks as that was the that, tweets. That was a couple of tweets. Yeah, I think that's Maybe more three. in key <laughs> So we got our one. We come back. Those terrific ones. Uh, we've got Robert's one on illegal and international yeah, politics. Yeah. And we start with sort of the public education one. Yeah, and then we try and fit in a round from the floor after this. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. I, I, apologies if I haven't completely understood what the question was about. But I think what it's about is public legal education in the sense of making sure that the public is well informed about legal issues. And, and I think that the answer uh, to the question is that that should start as early as possible. I I think that one of the most encouraging things uh, that happened in the immediate aftermath of the Human Rights Act was that uh, there were projects launched uh, in conjunction with the government, but also including NGOs and others, uh, to bring citizenship education into schools. And, and, and as I understand it, uh, I'm not an expert on educational matters, so forgive me if I, if I haven't got the details right, but uh, the national curriculum certainly used to uh, have an element of citizenship education. It's what in America is called civics. And it's always struck me 
how important it is to American society that people know about their constitution and they know about their, their fundamental rights. Sorry, it's just that security are waking their way from their, from their office. I'm sorry about the no, noise, right. Andrew. No, I'm but happy uh, to, if you would, if you could, I'm happy to please. carry on. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the, uh, the short answer to the question is that public legal education is important, in my view, at every level and including at the school stage uh, because it's an obvious truism that a well-informed citizenry is necessary in a democracy to hold all power to account. Uh, and that, of course, includes judicial power. Um, I think I, I guess that's an important thing to, to stress as well. Uh, the second question was whether it's useful or helpful to use the word illegal in the context of international politics. Well, I think the best way I can answer that is to draw attention to one of the chapters in the famous book, The Rule of Law, by Lord Bingham, Tom Bingham, the late, great Lord Bingham. Um, and he devotes one of his chapters to the rule of law in international relations. And it's very interesting. He describes the change in public expectations, I think, in the last 50 years or so, because he, he mentions in his uh, lecture which preceded the book and then in the book what happened in the Suez crisis in the mid-50s when, he says, the Attorney General of the day clearly advised the Prime Minister that the invasion of Suez <coughs> would be illegal in international law and the government and it would seem the country didn't care about those sorts of things it simply didn't register as part of the public discourse. And you put the clock forward about 50 years to the invasion of Iraq, on which it's well known that I was asked, uh, when I was still a barrister, uh, to give an opinion, and, and I, rightly or wrongly, I advised that the invasion of Iraq would be uh, and was illegal in international law. Um, and Lord Bingham was making the point that the public's expectation of whether a country should comply with international law clearly seems to have changed in those last 50 years. So my answer to the question would be that I think it is useful uh, and helpful because whether people like it or not, there is a body of law known as international law and we either take that seriously because we believe in the rule of law, as Lord Bingham did, uh, or we don't. And if we don't, then I think we should just stop saying that there is law and just say there is the use of force. And that I personally would find regrettable. It would be contrary to all the developments which I think have made the modern world uh, ever since, for example, the prohibition of war as a means of settling international disputes, which was arrived at by international consensus as long ago as 1928. And it was therefore possible to put the Nazi high command on trial for crimes against peace after 1945, because when they said, you are trying us retrospectively for an offense which did not exist, the world was able to answer and say, no, you're wrong. The world prohibited the uh, use of force 
to settle international disputes well before the Second World War, and what the Nazi High Command was found to have done was to prepare and launch a war of aggression in 1939. Uh, the last question was about uh, the word everyone. Uh, I'm not going to get into the debate about whether the Human Rights Act should be replaced with a UK Bill of Rights, uh, because that would be inappropriate for me as a serving judge to comment on. But it's well known, what I've said in the past about the most important word in the ECHR being everyone. Uh, and, I, and, and that remains my view, uh, that human rights are human rights. They, they are rights which belong to every human being by reason of our common humanity. And I'm not saying anything which is sort of hugely novel or mysterious. That's how the Universal Declaration of Human Rights begins. Every human being is born free and equal in dignity and rights. And that was the great lesson, again, I would suggest, which as a world we learnt from the atrocities of the Second World War and what had preceded it in the 30s. And, and let's not forget that one of the first things that Nazi Germany did, because it wanted to be able to attack people's fundamental rights, was to deprive Jewish people of their German citizenship. Because once you make them non-citizens, then in a legal system which says only citizens have rights, you can take away their property and you could take away their liberty and ultimately and horrifically they were able to take away their lives as well. Yeah. Uh, I want to get a round in before we finish from the floor. Uh, I, I, we've got this lady here which is great and I'm looking for others. I want to ask a question as I look for others. Mm. Roger Smith's here, from, uh, formerly from Justice, and he gave a brilliant talk, and I've got this, sir, here, uh, about the threat to legal aid from the government's proposals. And I have a question, but at the end of this, is, uh, preceding that, is an, is, a, is an observation, which is in the old days, the Lord Chancellor would have been partly a judicial as well as a political figure, mightn't have got through Cabinet, therefore, would have represented the legal professions. There would have been a range of senior judges in the House of Lords who might have spoken in second reading and made it very difficult, that's changed, and it's in our lifetimes it's changed. And quite extraordinary, aggressive cuts, as detailed by Roger in his talk the other day, last week or the week before, mean that quite a lot of absolutely good people will not be able to access this system to which you have given your oath. Now, that's an observation to which you may or may not want to re re reply. The question is about the increase in litigants in person. Mm. And in particular, the only <coughs> route that people without funds have, which is to stand up themselves mm. with papers all over the place, and that must cause concern if there has been the increase that I assume is either already in place or likely as a result of cuts. That's a question to take, perhaps, when we've had one or two from the floor, hoping still to end, as we said we would, on time. So unlike me, I'm asking you, madam, to be fairly succinct. I'll do my best, as I'm not a lawyer. I don't, and you I may don't say, you might don't say who you are? Sorry? You might say who you are? My name is Pugdarat. It's really another aspect of what is on the screen. Uh, it concerns me that um, your main position was that human rights are human rights, and they should be allowed to everybody. There is a consistent trend for uh, Britain in particular, but elsewhere in Europe also, 
to deprive asylum seekers and formally or informally stateless persons of the rights that give them access to justice and access to that. Have you any comments to make on that? Thank you for that. Uh, thank you very much, especially succinctness. There was a gentleman who caught my eye as I was framing my own observation. Thank you very much. Um, Tony Baker, I'll declare an interest to the extent of saying I'm a JP. Um, do you have any views about the uh, quality of uh, decision-making and judgments coming up from the magistrates' court, bearing in mind that something like 98% of all criminal cases are settled at magistrates' court? Uh, uh, Comparing, for example, whether you, the, the mix is right between lay magistrates and, uh, and district judges, uh, and the effect, thinking about the previous comment about economies, uh, on the creation of mega benches covering extremely large areas and perhaps threatening the idea of uh, local justice. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot, Tony. I think because of the time, we're going to have to ask Rabindra to deal fairly briskly mm. with these three and then we'll wrap up. Yes. Yeah, forgive me, on the, on the one about asylum claimants and stateless persons, I, I don't think I, I really have anything to add to my earlier answer about that question which we have on the screen. Uh, on the uh, litigants in person, or I think the, the, uh, the, the more uh, modern usage now is self-represented litigants. Oh, sorry. We, we do find uh, in every part, certainly of the civil justice system, not so much in the criminal justice system for perhaps obvious reasons, that there is an increase. Uh, and and uh, I don't really have any specific insight to share with you, save to say that the system is very much alive uh, to the need to be fair to everyone. When there are self-represented litigants in court, it does potentially pose a difficulty for a judge because while, of course, you want to help that person as much as you can because they don't necessarily have access to legal advice or knowledge, what you can't do is lean over too much towards one party because our adversarial system means that the role of the judge is... Uh, to act, as it were, as a, as a neutral referee. And the arguments are supposed to be put by each of the parties, and, and, and then we adjudicate on that dispute in that way. So I think all I can really do is acknowledge that there is a conundrum. What, what, one specific thing I would mention, which may not be so well known, is that in the administrative court, of course, we're dealing with public law disputes. So one party will usually be a public authority. And this is only anecdotal, uh, only anecdotal and impressionistic, but I'm getting the impression that whereas in the past we could often expect that at least the public authority would be represented in court, we're now finding that local authorities, because of their own spending cuts, are not able to afford to send an advocate to appear in court. And so I have personally had a number of occasions where I've got on the one side a self-represented litigant and on the other side an empty seat because they have written a letter or they have written uh, a skeleton argument, but they've said we, we are not intending to instruct an advocate to appear in court. And the reason it matters 
potentially, is that our system of certainly public law justice has, uh, as many in this room will know, uh, been based on the notion that public authorities are in a different position from commercial litigants. Uh, there's a case from the mid-80s called Huddleston where the master of the roles emphasized that a public authority should conduct public law litigation not in the way a commercial litigant would with their cards uh, face upwards on the table, as he put it. And so we do genuinely find that we get a lot of assistance from those who represent public authorities when they are there. But obviously if, if spending cuts mean that we don't always see them then we won't get that help on either side of the courtroom. And, and the last question was from Tony Baker, I think, about uh, justices of the peace and district judges. I, I, Tony, I don't feel qualified to make some kind of general comment about the quality of the reasons. Obviously, I have, uh, considering appeals from the magistrate's court, I've seen reasons. Uh, perhaps what I can just mention, though, is that it, I found it quite interesting. I was still at the bar when magistrates first were required to give reasons for their decisions. And I think it was in around 2000, 2001. And my recollection is, I'll be corrected by anyone in this room who knows better, my recollection is that it was uh, not the product of litigation. It wasn't something that had to be extracted uh, as a result of a court case being lost by the Lord Chancellor's Department, as it was then known. But my understanding is that this was a self-imposed requirement uh, by the Lord Chancellor's Department uh, at that time. And uh, it, I did a case as a barrister in, in the Haverford West Magistrates Court in 2000. And at the end of the hearing... Uh, I was in front of a bench of three lay justices, and at the end of the hearing, uh, they rose and said, we're going to go away and think about our verdict. And then when they came back, they delivered their verdict, and they read out a page of reasons. And I thought this was great, because it showed, contrary to all the received wisdom, that uh, justices of the peace are perfectly capable of agreeing the reasons for their verdict, uh, in a succinct form, and these are lay justices, so they're not legally qualified, although they have access to a legal advisor, and so they are perfectly capable of doing that. As far as I'm aware, that that, that is now commonplace uh, in our magistrates' court. And, I, and, I, and I'll leave the audience, if I may, with this conundrum, which uh, the courts have sometimes touched upon, but so far at least has never directly being decided which is whether we can still have a system of justice where in the most serious criminal offences in the Crown Court the jury is not required to give reasons Can I ask you to leave them with one other thing yep. <laughs> There's going to be a bunch of people here who think about becoming barristers Yes and I'd like you, in almost just three words, what the three things that are most important to success at the bar? Is it stamina? Is it intelligence? Is it a rich father? What, <laughs> just almost as I we can, finish I can answer, what I can, they are. I can certainly answer one of those questions because 
I did not have a rich father or a rich mother. Um, and I think it's one of the great things about this country that, uh, and I can genuinely say this, uh, as I was coming up through the legal system, nobody ever asked me, what did your father do? Or what does your father do? Um, I think that doors were opened to me because there was a real... There was an intellectual elitism, but it's not a social elitism. And I think that may be a difference from what people think happened in the past and maybe what happens in some other countries. But I do genuinely believe that uh, that's the kind of opportunities that I was able to have. And I think my parents would have been very proud. Uh, sadly, they passed away many years before uh, I became a judge. But I think that if they had seen my appointment last year, I think they would have been proud, not just for me, but I think they would have been proud about what this country actually is capable of uh, when it's at its best. Now, to answer your question directly, Connor, about what, what are the qualities that you need, uh, certainly uh, hard work uh, and stamina. I suppose the reason why it was really enjoyable for me was that, I mean, I wasn't a rumpole. No, I, I wasn't. I didn't fit any traditional mold of what people in the caricature or the stereotype might think a barrister in this country looks like. And yet, I was able to have a flourishing career and get, go into the highest courts in the country and appear in the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And, and I think that what I sort of derive from that is that you need to have a real sense that deep thinking about intellectual problems is not a problem for you, but you have to use it in a very practical way. So I, mean, I think that's the appropriate thing to end with in an academic environment. An academic is often used in the legal profession as a dirty word. An academic is used as a sort of term of abuse. Uh, but, what, but what I think I, I learned from my experience at the bar was that actually having an interest in the academic side of law, having an interest in deep thinking about the law, as long as it's garnered for a practical purpose, uh, it was a really useful thing to have. And I think, therefore, that clients came to me because they thought that that was the kind of experience and expertise that they were going to get. And at the end of the day, they want to win cases. And they thought that uh, with a barrister like me, they would actually win their cases. Well, I'm, I'm going to uh, wrap up the proceedings. We've had a lot of tweets, and we've covered a lot of ground because of the way in which we were able to go through the introductory remarks quickly. And I think that, Rabindu, you've taken on the spirit of the occasion tremendously, and thank you very much. Now, we've put up here uh, the agenda, and as you can see, we're developing this series in a way which we hope will lead you to become much more aware of the underlying working patterns of and public engagement of our judges and our leading practitioners 
Lucy is uh, Law Society. David Panic is a very well-known barrister of great distinction, very many times with Rabinder, I imagine. Uh, Jean-Paul Coste is the former president of the European Court of Human Rights. Tremendous guy coming here. Uh, there's that bloke there trying to sell a book. Uh, I have no idea who Dr. Frankie Vogel is, but he sounds incredibly persuasive. Uh, this will be interesting to you, Rabinder. We are putting uh, austerity on trial for breach of international human rights law. It's going to be a big thing over the weekend. We've got superb line of both sides, barristers on each side, and uh, we're trying to say it's a breach of social and economic rights. And then we can ask Baroness Hale, who will be in this room in March, about that revelatory remark that she wanted to find against Rabindra Singh but couldn't because of the sheer perfection of his argument, which I thought was a wonderful story and a nice way in which to end. Can you please join me in expressing tremendous gratitude to Rabinder for giving so much uh, of himself to this great occasion? Thank you, Rabinder. Thank you. dignify him with a round of applause, but let's acknowledge the work that Bradley Barlow has put into this. Come on, come on, come on, come on.